0: All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? is? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuck eyes? What's going on? How's it going? Where are we at? What is that? What is that? What what is that? What wait? What it? What do I hear? Holy shit! What is that? That sounds fucking great. Wait, is that is that old ZZ Top? I think it is. ZZ Top, Billy Gibbons, on the show today. Some of you might be like, really, ZZ Top? Well, you know who you are? You grew up too fucking late, man. I'm talking pre-beard shit, folks. I'm talking the first four, five, six, even seven records. I couldn't be more excited. Now, I'm going to set something up, and I don't usually do it. But Billy sat in here after we talked with a cigar box resonator guitar and played a Ry Cooder interpretation of a traditional song Billy the Kid that I couldn't fucking believe it was happening. I told Jack uh, I told Jack White about it. Yeah, I'm dropping names. Left and Right today, I guess. By the way, I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. I'm sorry. You know, I I you know, obviously I got beside myself. Got a little excited. I mean, come on, man. They got I got a big place in my heart for this easy top. And I get to talk to Billy Gibbons. I'm going to share it with you. So I run into Jack White. I I brought this up in the pre-show ad. And, uh, you know, he recognized me. And, you know, it was kind of a big deal to me. Was that ridiculous? He's You know, Jack's great. And I told him I talked to Billy. I told him about this song that Billy plays at the end of this. I, I so want to get Jack that song. I think Billy Gibbons should do a whole fucking album like that, man. I don't know what we got to do. I don't know what we got to do to get him to do it. Uh, but I do want to tell you that ZZ Top is now in, is is touring Europe and they're going to be back in the States next month. You can go to ZZTop.com for the full tour brochure. What's going on, man? I was just in Chicago and I got to say, uh, despite all my panic and attempts at destroying my confidence alone, uh, I had a great show, man. And I want to thank everybody that came out to the Anthenaeum. Is that how you pronounce it? The, that theater? Sold it out. Me and Adam Burke, me and Adam Burke laid one out, did a nice hour and a half show. He did like 20. Nice two hour package. Pow, look out. Just shit my pants, justcoffee.coop. That's a classic plug from Mark Marin, who was sitting right here talking about himself in the third person. So, okay, look, here's what happened. So I go to Chicago. Now, you know, some of you were with me uh, throughout the process of building the hour, Uh, you know, and I was not that confident about it. But the thing about me is I don't seem to realize that I've spent more than half my life on stage and that what really needs to happen is I just need to show up and be present and be open and be you know, ready to engage and be me on stage and see what happens. I'd rather that happen. I'd rather have no material at all. I'd rather just make something happen out of thin air that's never happened before. But when I play a big theater and we sold that thing out, man, like 950 seats in Chicago. So I was like, wow, we sold out. And then there's that part of me that's like, do you even deserve to sell out? And then I'm sort of like, you know, shut up, dude. And, and then he's like, no, seriously. I mean, do you really think you've got the juice for this? And then I go through this whole weird sort of deconstruction process of, of, of who I am and what I do. And I'm tired of it. Jesus fucking Christ, man. I'm 50 years old. I've been doing this most of my life. Why do I got why does that got to be my process? Why does my process have to be I don't know if I can do this. And I ended up at Italy, and I'm just sitting there like I'm fucked. I'm fucked there. How am I going to you know, I'm going to disappoint 950 people. And I'm just like I'm just I've decided that I'm no good. I'm not funny. I got no right. And I'm just looking at some guy looking at pastry. He's just looking at it he's just looking in the case he's bent over and there's this look on his face and he's just having this weird it's not even weird. it was pure it was beautiful. He's just having this you know this longing relationship with with one of the pastries in the case and I just I was so it was so pure. I was like it's just pure desire. it's just that guy looking at what he wants to put in his mouth. There's nothing dirty about it. there's, there's it's primal, you know that's not fetishized. So I notice that, and then a woman walks up, and she starts looking at the case. And now they're both looking at pastries with just the honest, pure desire of of wanting a pastry and making a decision. And then I start looking at the woman's ass, and I realize, like, that's not a lot different. The feeling I'm feeling, these are pure human feelings. I'm looking at her ass, and they're looking at pastries. Yeah, I think that pastries are a little pure, because you don't, you know... You're not thinking about putting the pastries elsewhere or whatever. But I just started to tap into these kind of primal desires. Like, look, I, I'm just, this is passive. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not like, I got to meet her or nothing. It's just like, it's what my brain does. And it's sort of I locked into that and I realized, like, this is what people do, man. They want to eat and they want to fuck and they don't want to die. And for some reason, I thought that was a, a great grounding realization. And, uh, and I felt better about everything. And then I, I somehow pulled it together. I, I brought, I, w- I was just looking for some reason, some reason, something to hang my failure on. And then this kid, Liam Cunningham, he's a friend of the guy who booked the thing. And, um, and, he, and he, they, he was um, driving me around. You know, that was his gig, was driving me around. And uh, he plays guitar uh, with Jeff Tweedy sometimes on the road and stuff. And he's a sweet guy, and we get to the, uh, he drives me to the theater, and there's two guitars in there. He's a guitar player. There's a little record player there, and he's like, hey, they told me that you wanted to, you like playing guitar. And I'm like, holy shit, this is the best. So I just sat in my dressing room in this old theater, jam- jamming some blues, listening to him play some ragtime guitar, I relaxed. Before I went on stage, all I was thinking was, dude, you just got to be present. Just because it's a big room doesn't mean you have to be as big as the room. The only difference between a big room and a small room is the size of the room. Make the room come to you. Make the room come to you. Just be present. Riff it out, bro. Riff it out. Just go through your day. Talk about where you're at and nail that shit. That's what you do. You make it You make it happen in that moment. That's the moment. That's the moment you're looking for. Hey, this is never going to happen again. It's coming out of my mouth. Make that happen. So I wrangled all my powers. I was driven by the blues. Thank you, Liam, for those guitars. God damn it. That helped out. And And we went out there and did it, man. We did it. I got to tell you, man, I'm tired of that cycle. There's got to be another way. There's got to be another way. For me to you know to, to prepare and just be like hey wh- how about let's go out there and kill and have a good time how about that how about that why don't you try that one alright let's talk to Billy Gibbons man the Buddha Billy Gibbons I learned how to play guitar from you. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize it until recently because I've been playing a lot because my, uh, you know, I'm out of a relationship and I find that's when you're supposed to pick up the guitar and and feel what's necessary to feel. Yeah. But where did you where did you get it?
1: Well, the BFG story: Billy F. Gibbons picked up a guitar on Christmas Day. I'd turned thirteen, December 16. Yeah. No guitar. Right. <laughs> Nine days later, under the tree, there it is. What kind? Gibson Melody Maker with a Fender Champ amp. That's the amp. And that's the way to go.
0: Yeah. And it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> so what were you listening to, though? What was moving you? I mean, you come from a musical family. What? How did you get get going?
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, my dear dad was an entertainer. He, he was uh, a keyboardist. He did all kinds of things. He yeah. came from uh it came from an interesting background five brothers their dad my granddad was a glove maker from england okay and uh they came over in 1906 and my, yeah. my dad was the youngest and one day i said uh how did, you, how did this entertainment thing get started and she said, well said <laughs> I so, uh, me and my brothers went down for lunch at the glove factory and when we left we said we need to think of something quick we ain't doing this they all learned how to play instruments and they started the Gibbons Brothers Band what was it big band well they started off as the Jazzy Five right and that was kind of a swing and ragtime group which
0: and what'd your dad play piano yeah uh huh yeah so and, they were the Jazzy Five
1: and then they later got uh, tuxedoed out and yeah. became legit They they were so good they wound up uh, landing a lot of the contracts up there at Lake George, Saratoga Spring, all those gangster hideouts.
0: Sure. Just doing dance music? Yeah. Like swing pretty much yeah. and then
1: and then, you know, the legit stuff of the day. Right. And kind of a
0: cover band.
1: I would yeah. 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 they wrote stuff um and uh, there was another glove maker in Gloversville. That was upstate New York. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, Gloversville, they make gloves. At this was in New
0: York. This was happening. Yeah, Well how did you end up in Texas?
1: Well, there was a guy in, out of Manhattan, and this was this was pre-Warren Harding Act when they broke up the monopolies. If okay. you had a Warner picture, you showed it in a Warner theater. Right. You had a Lowe's picture; it had to be in a Lowe's house. Okay. And this guy in New York, Will Horowitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, was dispatched down to Houston to build uh, some Lowe's theaters. Mm-hmm. And he had a daughter. And back in those days, those are the 20s. Yeah. And at that time, if you wanted a classic uh, summer holiday, yeah. you went up Niagara Falls and yeah. all that Catskill, Adirondack stuff. And uh, she fell for my dad. So they got married, had a little baby girl, and. One day, a guy came and said... Uh, my dad was Frederick Gibbons. Yeah. And he said, uh, Freddie, he said, uh, we're going to California. We've got a new business starting. Uh, this was Samuel Goldfish, glove maker. Mm-hmm. He later changed his name to Samuel Goldwyn. Oh, really? He was a glove maker. And they went to California. The fact the house I live in was... That was my dad's pad. This is interesting because Iris... Uh, Horowitz later me uh, Iris Gibbons mm-hmm. my dad's first wife and their daughter mm-hmm. uh, was she fell uh, victim to some strange malady and when the handwriting was on the wall her days were numbered she right. wanted to go back to Texas she right. wanted to go to Houston be with her dad
0: uh-huh.
1: my dad said fine uh, he was at MGM doing what? music director really? there was a bunch of them for he pictures was one of them. yeah I said pictures because that's what they were called then. The pictures. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, his second cousin or was Cedric Gibbons, the great art director, married to Dolores Del Rio and
0: So you come from a show business family in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I found I one when I braved the question, how did my dad get into this entertainment game? He finally l- let the cat out of the bag. He was a little skeptical because he knew I was leaning toward this rock thing. Yeah. And he was more legit right by this time yeah but uh iris passed away and well they they left california in in uh, 40 f- about 43 or 44 mm-hmm. and then she passed away uh but by this time my dad was ensconced in houston right and uh fortunately uh he met my mother so there it is
0: and she's from texas
1: ireland really english dad irish mother the war is going on right here <laughs> right down
0: below that's where the blues come from the fire is celtic a- blues yeah yeah she was irish with an irish accent even lorene duffy no she she was not
1: quite the brogue had kind of right i don't know if it was ever there but nonetheless uh it was good i red headed mean irish mother
0: uh-huh and, and then and, you, and your half-sister was living in the old house Out here? Yes. Okay. She said, hey, you want a house in Hollywood? And I said, oh, I thought she was joking. Yeah, and you took it. So
1: I said, okay. She said, well, your sister doesn't want it, and uh, my kids don't want it. I said, well, what are you talking about? Because my mom had this uh, strict edict. She said, uh, now look, the first chapter is now closed. We're starting chapter two. Don't Um, even talk to them. Don't even, Yeah. But the half sister, she started uh, peeling the onion, mm-hmm. and then my mother softened up, and she
0: said, "Okay, here's the whole story." Well, it's interesting that so you you're in that house that was part of your dad's life, yeah, in another life, and I and like I was always sort of hung up on this idea that you got you have some sort of you believe in the magic of the past, do you? I mean, you made didn't you make a guitar at a muddy waters house? Exactly, yeah see that when i heard about that and that was the guitar it was like was it a rectangle with the with the delta river with the mississippi on it yes but was when you made that guitar did you count on there being some magic in it
1: we knew that there would be we we made it i had a buddy tony fortune yeah who was uh, uh acting as a sales agent for his family's uh, company uh they were the distribution agent for Taylor Frozen Drink Machines. Okay. And he was dispatched to go from Memphis all the way down through Mississippi. He called me up and he said, uh, when you guys are in the studio, generally the uh, Saturday Sundays are, you know, let's get our batteries recharged. He right. said, I was coming back into Memphis and I was going through Clarksdale, Mississippi, and I saw a little tiny sign said Blues Museum. Yeah. He said, "Do you know anything about it?" And I said, "No. Uh, maybe we should go." So sure enough, we drove uh, from Memphis down to Clarksdale, and it it we almost ran out of uh, luck. Uh-huh. But the last question, "Do you know?" That? Oh, Blues Museum. That's part of the city library. So no one knew where it was. One guy, right? And uh, he ran a gas station. He was a he was a blues fan, right? And he thought that this was kind of novel because the blues was. I wouldn't say uh enjoying its popular uh
0: stat, pop the popular status that we know now. Yeah. Does so it, we went it in. Does it ever I mean it's been a long time since it, the I mean you you guys had to reinvent the blues for it to, to gain popularity, I think. Yeah, it comes and goes. Right. You know, and, and uh every so
1: often the the blues, all oh, right. Yeah. Right. Uh we met Sid Graves, who was the uh, curator, that was his uh Kind of his baby, yeah, hobby thing. Jim O'Neill, who was the founder of Living Blues Magazine, was also present.
0: Now, what 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 did they have in this place? How big was it?
1: It was one room upstairs, and uh, it was actually very fast It was a it was a you could you could feel the dedication that had surrounded the mm-hmm. establishment. But they were there talking about uh, their concern, the house that muddy waters grew up in mckinley morganfield was on stovall well back then it was stovall plantation they've changed right. the name and uh, it had been struck by a high wind and the highway department was uh threatening to tear it down as a safety hazard or something so here was sid graves and they said you want to go let's go check i said heck yeah so yeah. jumped in the car <laughs> drove down the way and uh we were walking around under the trees and there was this cabin and off to the side was this pile of refuse where the roof had kind of fallen in
0: okay and we were,
1: said okay great right and and both Sid and J- said well here uh, uh, don't you want a souvenir you got to take something from muddy waters house right <laughs> and here was this roof timber uh-huh. which we loaded in the trunk of the car and on the way back to Memphis we said well, what are you going to do with this I said wow I said we could we could saw it into planks glue it together and cut up a guitar and make something out of it yeah what's your guitar made of Uh, Muddy Waters <laughs> house
0: <laughs> okay so you did it
1: it was uh, it. Bec- we donated it um, Rick Rayburn from Pyramid Guitars there in Memphis uh, was actually the fabricator uh huh and uh not only did it play good it sounded great and it was a real tough call to let it go but we thought gee what a what a yeah offering where Let's is it now it it's in the delta blues music it's right
0: there it's in that in, little
1: place in clarksville did you play that thing on anything we we did we played it on uh, i think we played that on Degueo. Which was 1980 was our first record for Warner Brothers.
0: That you know, I just listened to that record yesterday. You know, like I've been listening, like I had the first five albums all my life. It feels like, okay. and I hadn't listened to Deguelo in a while, and that's a great fucking record. I like it. I mean, why did it take you so long to, to record Dust My Broom? Did you ever like consider that? I mean, you've been playing blues for for your whole life. Well, it was so
1: predictable in our opinion. Right. We just kinda overlooked that stuff. But
0: you found a different groove in it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. When it finally <laughs> happened and of course uh, you mentioned Terry Manning, the engineer, John Fry, the owner of Ardent, yeah. Joe Hardy and John Hampton. Those were the four key players that uh, made Memphis our second home. Okay. And uh and that's
0: where you recorded DeGuey?
1: Yes. And well we recorded uh every Everything from Trace Ombres onward. There, up until uh, oh, about 1996, Rhythmine was the first. Uh, we 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 built a mirror image studio in Houston. Okay. So we 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 knew we had a place in Memphis. Now we had a fallback in Houston. Yeah. And uh, they.
0: That's where you did mean in Houston? Yeah. In the start, Replica
1: studio? Started there. And
0: that was sort of the return to the original sound. Yes. That was an intentional transition out of the, uh, the what, three or four record period of spinning guitars and beards and syncopated drumming. Yeah, oh, yeah. All, all of the... We, we,
1: we had the opportunity to do just that, return to a more uh, earthy and kind of early style. Dirty. But it was uh uh terry manning and hardy and the the whole ardent team yeah we woke up and they said you know we've never we were not pr- necessarily a purist blues band by any stretch we were more of realists i guess interpreters
0: well the weird thing to me like you you from the very first album, you know, found this very unique groove to the blues that was really your own. I mean, you know, you, you sort of figured out some weird, that drive that, that comes a little from John Lee Hooker, but some other groove that, you know, you're not afraid to stand on a chord for a while. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but like, it's, it's so it, 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 you reinvented the fucking music That in and and redefined it, I I think, from the very beginning, and that just happened naturally. Well, Dusty Hill, the bass player in ZZ Top, Frank Beard, yeah,
1: our percussionist, sure, the the man with no beard, yeah, they uh grew up listening to about the same kind of stuff that I was into. Which, who was it? Well, it was, uh, of course, the famous uh station from across the border of Mexico, yeah, (laughs) XERF.
0: And you wrote a song,
1: yeah, heard it on heard the it X. Heard on the X. Yeah. Uh, but those uh, late night sessions, you know, you're sitting there with the transistor radio under the pillow and right. you're hearing all of that great, great blues stuff. Uh, we, f- of course, we followed the Rolling Stones uh, intimately. Yeah. And I think it would be fair to say that, that uh, the British guys who wound up... Uh, Taking all the unwanted blues records yeah. kind of salvaged it this was a disappear rapidly right evaporating art form right thanks to the uh onslaught of what came out of the uk it was returning right and uh, then of course eric clapton came along and tore it up uh followed with uh, peter green peter green's the guy right mick oh yeah mick taylor so, so many guys, Mick Abrams. Uh, so
0: you, but you were listening to them and the old stuff, yeah, the source material, because a lot of those guys, I mean, like the Stones' blues was a little hopped up and kind of pure, but then Peter Green, I don't know, I don't know where that guy came from. I don't know where his sound comes from. I mean, like it is some of the saddest shit I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, he, he, he,
1: the expressiveness that uh, emanated from not only his guitar playing but his singing oh i know man which is the tough part of it man of the world oh yeah what <laughs> and uh, i recently uh, appeared in hawaii yeah with uh uh willie Kay on guitar mick fleetwood was on drums what he a was. drummer man oh and you know getting up on stage was uh, the easy part yeah the hard part was curtailing the hours upon hours of stories oh really of back then and you know peter green to this day mick fleetwood uh considers him leader of the charge right and uh so be it the guy is i i listen to it daily
0: so what was the first man
1: yours uh the saints yeah which uh, we were 13 uh-huh this was about six months of you know wood shedding in the bedroom, and, yeah uh, although Christmas day by the end of the uh, right before midnight, I was stuck on that thing, and I learned the Jimmy Reed chords, yep, yeah. that little you know turn around boogie, yep, yeah. and the opening four notes uh to ray
0: charles what'd i say right it's all you need right and that's it that started <laughs> and then you get your pentatonic scales later, and you're done you're done <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: oh. so the saints so you were in junior high yeah three guitars and drums three uh, guitars no bass no, no just guitars yeah whoever was, played uh,
1: david croswell on uh one guitar myself yeah. Yeah. Uh, philip taft on guitar and steve meckley yeah Holding down the percussion end of things, and uh, any of those uh, guys stick with it. Yeah, we well, we still uh, stay in touch. They've gone on to different things, but they uh, they woodshed all the time. Uh-huh. We have threatened to get it back together. The Saints? The trouble is, our first paying gig was in Mickley's uh, yard, uh-huh. playing for a car wash, <laughs> being <laughs> washed in <laughs> the driveway. Right. Yeah. People go to the, you know, they pay and, you know, they drive through the automatic wash these days, but
0: we're threatening. Uh-huh, yeah. Maybe another... So that was part of the pitch? You got live blues music and you get your car wash. Yeah. In fact, here we are in the garage. I know.
1: We could go to the front. There's yeah. room.
0: No. Not uh, much room. This is where men work. Yeah, okay. <laughs> in the garage. So what was the first uh, uh,
1: real band? Well, I consider the Saints uh, having latched on to that distinction uh the second paying gig was for a high school drinking club called H- hoffa high ronka mm-hmm. and it was um uh, founded by the seniors of the high school we were still i was still in junior high and Yeah, kid. and uh hoffa high Ronca was uh one of the guy, one of the members, his dad was a distrib- beer distributor. And yeah. One of the one of the beers was Hoffman's, right? And so Hoffa for Hoffa, you get high and ronked on Hoffman's beer. Uh-huh. So Hoffa high Ronka. Okay. We played the party, and of course it got raided. And I remember scampering over the fence with guitar over his shoulder and trying to ca- hang on to that, that, that champ Fender Champ. Yeah, I said this is for me. Yeah, this is okay. <laughs>
0: yeah, your melody maker and your champ. Yep. And what were you guys playing blues? All kinds of stuff, you know. Just rock and roll. The rock and roll. Yeah, day, yeah. So yeah. when did you lock in to uh to, you know, to a, a a real sort of uh concert outfit? Uh from the Saints, we
1: started a uh little high school band. We called it the Coachman and it was proper with a, a Mike Fraser on bass and uh uh you know, we had a nice four-piece yeah. outfit. And then uh the 13th Floor Elevator sprang onto the scene in uh, about 66. They had a big record uh, that broke out nationally called You're Gonna Miss Me. Right. And they turned it upside down. Is that, that
0: what, was, that's Rocky Erickson? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. His voice yeah. was freak out, just yeah. maniacal. Yeah. Scream And Tommy Hall with these, you know, cerebral lyrics and the playing the jug. Uh, those records they too still hold water we listen to those
0: every day uh-huh now do you are are you friends with rocky yeah yeah play
1: on occasion i'll, I'll take, yeah. take the deck with him <laughs> he uh recently uh uh asked me to come up and uh whether he recalls that we were friends in 67 yeah it's not clear i'm not sure <laughs>
0: <laughs> and one way
1: lost a whole year or two. One, yes, yeah. Uh, our dear girlfriend in Austin, who's kind of a mover and shaker about town, she said, uh, yeah, "Yeah, that was really a good performance you delivered with Rocky." Uh, I overheard him uh, mention to one of the band members. He said, "Yeah, Billy uh, is pretty good. Maybe you think we can get him in the band?" <laughs> so
0: I don't know. Maybe there's a chance. <laughs> so that inspired you
1: yes we uh changed the name to the moving sidewalks from the coachman yes we, yeah the 13th floor elevators were such an influence and uh, we followed them diligently and everything was
0: breaking open psychedelic music was happening yeah our first
1: uh recorded work was yeah. a track called 99th floor so you can see the interplay
0: now were you guys uh tripping and stuff
1: I believe. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there was a way to remember all of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it's a, not clear. Man. And you guys did a record? We did. Uh, it was called Flash by The Moving Sidewalks. It, but just recently uh, been reissued as a very handsome box set. Got a nice 50-page booklet to go along with it. How many tracks did you do? Uh, well, it's a two-disc set. They yeah. they dredged up things that I had forgotten about. It was so well uh, uh, orchestrated, in fact, uh, finding all of this.
0: I got to hear photos. it, man. Yeah. Can you hear yourself in there? Yeah. yeah. Do you, do you, can you identify the, the what became your guitar style within that? Yes.
1: Uh, there's one track called Joe Blues. Which, okay. See, the moving sidewalks were hired to travel with Jimi Hendrix out of the clear blue and this is your band yes and you're and who hired you out of texas 1968 to... we were working out of uh, houston yeah and uh the Jimi hendrix experience had launched this u.s uh jaunt and you knew his stuff oh yeah we had gotten that first are yeah. you experience i read about it somewhere and i said wow this uh, like sounds interesting and once you heard it there was oh. no turning back
0: it's like that was all blues too though man he was straight up blues
1: yeah. Right. He did uh, the psychedelic, turned it inside out. Right. But he never he never left. He always had one foot in the blues.
0: Right. Buddy Guy. Yeah.
1: And <laughs> just did it right. He was doing things with the Fender Stratocaster guitar that I'm fairly certain the designers had no inkling of this being possible. No one. No one can understand how the hell he did it. But there was a group called the Soft Machine, yeah. That was they were traveling on the bill. That was John Wyatt's group, another trio. Uh huh. And I got to be
0: uh, fairly tight with Jimi Hendrix. And you're both what? Were you about the same age? I mean, he was like what, 25? He was uh, 24. Yeah. I think I was eighteen. 19,
1: eighteen. Sixty-eight. Were you guys trading licks? Oh yeah. He made arrangements. Chaz Chandler. Yeah who was the bass player for Eric Burden's group the Animals? Yep. And Chaz had uh put the bass guitar aside to become uh Jimi Hendrix's manager. Mhm. And uh it was uh it was an interesting uh, excursion because at that time there was some concern over uh which hotel to select that yep. would let mixed groups oh, right, come right. in. Yeah. And uh it was always arranged where Jimmy and I had opposing hotel rooms on either side of the hall at the very end of the hallway. Right. And I found out later why each afternoon – uh, there were a couple guys that would bring in this piece of furniture called a record player. And this was not a little handled suitcase. This was... <laughs> the console? The console. <laughs> the whole unit, big piece of furniture. And... Yeah. He said, yeah, come on over, man. Check this out. Well, he was studying the work of Jeff Beck, the first Jeff Beck group. Really? Rod Stewart on vocals and Jeff on guitar. He said, what do you think? How do you think he's doing this? Which completely blew my mind. <laughs> because, really? And I've talked to Jeff he sits in disbelief when i tell him yes Jimi hendrix was studying every jeff beck lick because he, he went out up. there
0: too like he he pushed it yes. so so like and jimmy's a guy that pushes it so if there's a noise that's coming out of a guitar that he can't figure out he's going to be like oh man <laughs> yeah <laughs> what what is he doing and you sat there and tried to work that shit out with him
1: yes uh, and of course jimmy's interpretation took it to another level oh really uh jeff was already on mars mm-hmm. and then jimmy said yeah let's go out there to to, to meet him uh. <laughs> i said okay <laughs> we'll go out there
0: and what, what were you doing when you you were playing and he was playing and you would just sit there and try to work it out
1: yeah uh one of the endearing uh, uh exchanges was the fact I was attempting to study everything Jimi Hendrix was doing. Right. As he was listening to Jeff Beck, I was listening to Jimi Hendrix. Right. Are you experienced? And you're just sitting there watching him play. Oh, yeah. He'd say, uh, well, do you know this? And And what I'd I'd go, well, not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs) What was he, just trading licks? I mean, what were they? Trading licks and uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, the Fender Stratocaster was his weapon of choice. Right. And And you're a Gibson uh, guy. Well, at the time I was chasing with the Stratocaster. Oh, you were okay. And the Stratocaster has three pickups, right? And there is a uh, little toggle switch with three settings, right? Front pickup all the way front, mm-hmm. middle pickup in the middle, and the, pickup that that searing back. lead pickup. Well, Hendrix discovered that if you gingerly moved the toggle switch right. between back and middle, there yeah. was this weird in-between.
0: It's a poppy. They make a five-position switch now. Yeah. I love that sound. That's what Stevie Ray took. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, But they didn't have the five-way
1: switch then. He invented it. Huh. He disco- Well, he discovered oh, Sure. It. And then, of course, later they said, well, this is too good. We need to make this. It was not designed. It was a mistake. It was just an anomaly right. within that little contraption. Uh, it was spring-loaded, and early on, it, 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 you had to be very careful to get it at the sweet spot. Right. But sometimes, if you jumped around too much, uh, the spring would pop it out of place. So then Hendrix took it apart, removed the spring so it would rest easy and not... Run the riff. So he was
0: a guy, he got into the mechanics of it. He him. was
1: an inventor. It yeah. was
0: just like this, yeah. Tanger. What kind of guy was he? R- cool Cat. Nice? Cool Cat, yeah. Just all about
1: guitar? Very much so. Yeah. Dedicated. Uh, I don't know if there could be three guys that melted into this uh, uh, aggregation any more uh, stridently. They were all, Noel Redding uh, he was actually a guitarist that went to bass. Right. But his guitar playing skills made him a wonderful compliment on the low end. Right. And Mitch Mitchell is underrated as a out and out jazzer.
0: Yeah, the, he's a jazz guy.
2: flourishes. Oh,
0: yeah. But, so, what'd you pick up from Jimmy? Where'd you start popping those strings? Oh, uh,
1: we'd. We actually had the nerve, this is when you're 18 and yeah. you don't have any sense. Yeah. We, would, we did a couple of Jimi Hendrix numbers right. opening the show.
0: And he thought okay. that was the
1: funniest thing. He <laughs> said, man, you're doing my stuff all right. I like it.
0: <laughs> it was crazy. Do you remember anything specific that you know
1: you, you kind of you know, learned from him? There's one interesting tale yeah. from the time we were together. Uh, we started off in Texas, and then we went west. That's yeah. where the bookings were taken. Right. I think it might have been in Phoenix. Uh-huh. And uh, we, were, we were in the venue, kind of stuck, and it was – we couldn't leave. There was no place to go, and there was time to kill. And uh, there was an Englishman that was helping out. as func- He functioned as the truck driver and the roadie and yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh the soft machine had a they, part of their thing they they would uh they would uh, erect a rail a trough above the stage and behind mm-hmm. and it was filled with fluorescent uh liquid okay and they would <laughs> let it drip with black light so it was raining yeah. blue <laughs> Glowing blue, glowing blue, <laughs> yeah. as they played, and it would splash on the deck. And you know, it was who, messy. And, who,
0: who knew what was in it? I mean, <laughs>
1: it's it horrible for you. So, one this fateful night, Jimmy sent Nigel out. Uh, where he, he found some, he went out and got these large Bahamian sponges, mm-hmm. and we. we secured them to the end of the guitar neck with big rubber bands yeah i said now what are we doing and they he also sent out for some giant sheets of paper uh he found a billboard supply company Mm -hmm. that had giant pieces of white that were going to become billboards. right and we we hung them from the back and he had gallon jugs of fluorescent paint also gotten from this billboard shop so he turned up the marshall lamps i turned up mine and uh, the feedback was
0: just
1: and we dunked the end of the guitar and started splashing fl- the fl- fluorescent paint jobs a painting yeah yeah (laughs) you know they had evacuated the office oh oh, so it was after the show yeah we were just (laughs) hanging out this and this is what he would he
0: would dream this kind of stuff up Uh, that's why i was crazy so how did you evolve out of like you know what was you know a a, a trend in music into you know just going back to you know the straight up shit you know when when zz top formed
1: well the uh, sidewalks were we moved to california and then shortly thereafter, uh, we were playing a couple of the joints on the strip. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, well, the two famous ones, Gazzari's, Yeah, which lasted lo- the longest. Long time. And then next door was the Galaxy,
0: uh-huh. uh, Pandora's Box. So this is like, what, 67? 68, 68 into so, 69. So this is crazy here. It's, it, it's like, you know, the, everything's it, blown open.
1: Insane. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard on the north side of the street was... Yeah was it's two lanes going east, two two lanes coming back west. The curbside lane was no longer uh, trafficable by vehicles. People were spilling off the sidewalk in that first lane. Just freak show. Just, I mean, uh, wall-to-wall people. Guys with T-shirts with a menu of acid, yeah. five bucks, yeah, uh, yeah, weed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, It was just, you know. Was well, it?
0: Yeah. Every other block.
1: Yeah. And uh, the local authorities were, they were, some of them were amused with it. It was Well, like, they
0: were probably just happy, let's just keep it contained. But, if we keep it within that try. one mile made- yeah. radius. Yeah. Let That'll them have
1: one it. One lane, right. one mile. Okay. Right. Yeah. But uh, those were some crazy days. But uh, the keyboardist and the bassist for the Moving Sidewalks were uh, uh, called into uh, uh, the military. Oh, really? And it left me and the drummer uh, kind of going, well, we still want to do this. These guys will be out for a couple of years. Did they make it back? They did, mm-hmm. fortunately. Uh, so the drummer and I uh, kept it going, and we actually worked as a, as a two-piece drum and bass for a short time then we got a bass player and then things started to un uh, started to morph uh, the drummer twisted off and then uh, the bass player that we had hired he was a, a guy from Dallas mm-hmm. Billy Etheridge and he said wow he said uh, I know a drummer who turned out to be Frank beard yeah uh, Billy Etheridge uh, was more entry he was focused on uh, he liked the hammond b3 he wanted to get away from the base and go to Oregon. so uh, he said i'm going to step down but frank knows a guy it turned out to be none other than dusty hill little did i know that frank beard and dusty hill had worked together since they were 14 so i inherited this tight strident rhythm section yeah tight yeah and i just walked on it was a diving board i said okay <laughs> fine let's and, go and they were all about the blues they were and it was shortly there not not the first day we uh it was in an afternoon and we were gonna we were gonna try it to see yeah. if it was gonna work we were where about, was it where'd you do that that was in we were back in texas in houston mm-hmm. and uh we were gonna do a little 30-minute set yeah well we started down on a shuffle, a blues shuffle in C. Three hours later, we finally pulled it to the curb. I said, I think this going to work.
0: <laughs>
1: so there's an interesting history of, of, you know, that 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 is the cornerstone. Uh, we've tried not to get too far from it
0: well was it a relief though because like i imagine at that time in the mid 60s and hanging out with jimmy and, and dealing with the soft machine and seeing where music was going to sort of get back to a to a shuffle and just fucking you know open that thing up it must have been sort of a relief and it must have appeared different than what was going on elsewhere
1: there was a great book by paul oliver called the story of the blues yeah still available uh it's it's Considered to be uh, the most, uh, the illumination that he brought forth uh-huh. going back uh, to menstrual days, right. the 20s. Right, Carrying it on right up till that time that was, you know, late 60s. Yeah. And uh, we learned so much. There See, was Paul Oliver's works. Uh, another Englishman, Tony Russell, was doing some great documenting. So yeah.
0: you, so you guys would read about it and then you'd go get the records? Yeah. So which records were the ones that you're like that that's the drive shaft right there. Well, the
1: benchmark we still consider Jimmy Reed. There's not a day that starts off without playing a Jimmy Reed number. It's the best. It's so yeah, uh, uh, you know, people so oh, that Jimmy Reed stuff that's that. that's that easy stuff until you start understanding the complexity between Jimmy Reed. Yeah. The second guitarist eddie taylor and yeah the, and the drummer right it's all wrong yeah and it works right and try to figure that out
0: was it him that had a like a, a problem with it with his eyesight or something that his wife used to have to you know transcribe shit or, or, or am i making that up
1: no mama reed as they called her uh was always at his side yeah and uh although certain interviews would uh would argue yeah that that never happened that she was present but clearly there are examples of uh recordings where you can hear her whispering the words right as it's coming
0: up to right. the, the next line uh-huh. she'd give him a hint so let's go through like I, let's go through uh i don't usually do this but i want to go through the records can we do it? Yeah, yeah. All right. So the first album, how was that received? ZZ Top's first album. It's out of the out of the gate. 19, what is it, 71, 72? seventy two? Seventy. Nineteen seventy. Yeah, we started uh in the latter part of sixty nine. Yeah. And then went up
1: uh to make uh the first uh it was called ZZ Top's first album. Yep. very inventive. Yeah. Uh and that was uh that was our first uh crack out of the box yeah how how was it received uh we had a nice little number uh, called somebody else been shaking your right. tree yep which uh gained some uh, popularity over the airwaves
0: and uh, backdoor love affair you did live on what was it the b-side of uh was it texas or fandango Fandango. yeah right yeah sure enough <laughs> uh yeah. so you
1: brought that one back around and uh, my dear buddy Uh, from again from Houston who had uh, relocated to Memphis Mm -hmm. he called me up long distance and held the phone up to the record player and he was playing uh, a Peter Green number the early Fleetwood Mac which one which Uh, number uh, um, it was um, off their first record and it was uh, one of their slower numbers okay which inspired the track that ZZ Top uh, chose to interpret, entitled "Just Got Back from Babies," uh-huh. which was our first real six-eight slow blues number. Uh-huh. And the the good, I think that, that the first album is indicative of what uh, was it was percolating all along. Right, this
0: blues thread, yeah, was was tying it all together right but now that i think about it like you know when you the more you talk about uh about dusty and uh about frank beard like that that drive you know that where they just kind of pushed you out there and you you could just like you didn't have to worry about anything i (laughs) could close my eyes and i knew there was solid standing i didn't have to worry about a thing (laughs) and then on the second record uh, that you had a hit on that one didn't you what was that Just Got Paid is on the second record right yes. on Real Grande Mud that's a great record mm. and that that got a little traction didn't it yeah by this time we had just started traveling
1: uh, out of state mm-hmm. we were tripping over into Louisiana Mississippi and, uh, and thanks to Walter Baldwin mm-hmm. living in Memphis he was uh, pals with a guy up there Stedman Matthews and mm-hmm. Stedman was kind of a mover and shaker. And, and he organized a uh, a blues gathering at the Overton Park Band Show. It was a little tiny version of the Hollywood Bowl, outdoor seating. Yeah, And uh, he played, our, in fact, our first record had just uh, been released. Walter got a copy. I sent it up there. He played it for Stedman. His, and Stedman said, well, you know these guys. Let's let's put him on the on the blues show. Yeah. And uh, there was... Uh, Furry Lewis was on the program. Wow. Johnny Wood, the famous harmonica player from Memphis. Furry Lewis must have been 100. At that time, he was probably. Yeah. And uh, uh, Bobby Bland showed up. Wow. B.B. Um, King was on the bill. Uh-huh. So these were the heavyweight guys. Right. And uh, when we came to town... Uh, we we showed up a couple of days early and stedman tripped over we were staying at the uh, linden lodge mm-hmm. uh, right off of beale street and uh stedman dropped over and, and walter called me uh later he was rather humored he said uh, well you've created panic <laughs> i said what do you mean he said well I understand. Stedman paid you a visit. I said, "Yeah, very nice guy. Very, we're really excited about this appearance." Yeah. He goes, "Yeah, but you're white. <laughs> he, he's put you on at the tail end." <laughs> so I was going, "Okay, yeah, well." Whatever. After these legends, yeah, and uh, because when he heard the record, he he never questioned it for a moment. He said, "Oh yeah, great black blues group. Okay, fine, right. fine." But uh, that evening we really delivered a powerhouse set and all of the hotshot players around Memphis had, were in attendance and they waited around waited around and we got to meet the really the the lineup of great players uh guys I would know uh well there was uh the, Jim Dickinson the, rest his soul uh the great record producer uh huh uh, he had a band called Mud Boy and the Neutrons, uh-huh. and they were all over the chart. They were doing crazy stuff. Lee Baker was uh, one of the great guitar players. The young white Robert Johnson was... Uh, he was on the scene. Uh, just a Who's long, that? He was from Memphis. He, he was... Uh, His name was Robert Johnson. Yeah. Yeah, he had to play. He had to play. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was actually Robert that... Uh, he, he was uh, um, he was well connected around town and uh, he said you know there's a guy that uh, you need to meet and I had decided to stay in Memphis for a couple days to hang out with Walter and the rest of the right. day and it was Robert that introduced me to a guy a rather eccentric character named Mike Ladd who ran a shop called Mike Ladd's Guitar City Uh huh. it was perched in a strip mall, looking out of his door across Highway Fifty One,
0: staring at Elvis's house. Right, perfect location. I know perfect. that strip mall. Elvis's uncle Vernon used to sell a book in front. Like it's right across from Graceland, right? Yeah. Well, at the time, it was it was a cleaners and a right. But now, now it's all Elvis
1: stuff. All Elvis. Right. They took it over later, but. Uh, Mike Ladd is an enigmatic character in that he was he could be credited with having the foresight to understand what vintage guitars before that word was even floating around. Uh-huh. He knew the value of this magical spot when Gibson, Fender, and the great guitars
0: were being made. Pre CBS Fenders, yeah, 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 and those old Gibsons from the fifties. Oh yeah, and that that was uh the start of it
1: uh in fact uh mike ladd has the distinction his father uh was one of the three founding members of holiday inn hotel chain. really
0: <laughs> so he was sort so of, he was all
1: right mike ladd was all right he was well healed and had a pocket full of change and uh, all he wanted to do was hang out with guitars and the guys that played them oh that's fun So, uh, in fact, uh, he and I went to the Gibson Guitar Factory uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. This was 72. Mm -hmm. And uh, by this time, uh, Robert came back on the scene. He said, you know, you guys make really good music. Uh, You've got two records behind you. Um, I think if you would give Memphis a shot, you could up the ante on making great sounding records you make great sounding music let's make great sounding records and so that's where you went for Trace hombres yes we had already recorded the tracks uh, in texas but i was persuasive enough to uh give it a try i've got the management uh, to say well let's go check this what, out. what made the difference uh i was i was insistent because uh uh robert and walter and so many of the musicians
0: but were, you already laid down the track so you're bringing master tapes to memphis to, to mix okay so they that...
1: were they were still in a pretty raw okay form but uh led zeppelin had just done led zeppelin three in memphis right and they had terry manning and joe hardy and it, it was the memphis music scene was still quite robust. Stax was still going. Right. Um Isaac Hayes, of course, was leading the charge and so many of the great Stax artists were still Yeah. uh, I had Booker T in here once. uh, Yeah, for a couple hours. The guy. (laughs)
0: Yeah, he's the guy. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And that first experience in Memphis led to the release of what we know as Trace Ombres, which had Lagrange. That was the big one. Waiting for the bus. Jesus just left Chicago. Mm-hmm. It was. It was great.
0: Is fun. that the one that broke you?
1: Yeah, that did it. That was our first top ten. Was when was Lagrange? Yeah, man. It sure enough was, man. And we didn't leave Memphis for the next eighteen years.
0: You lived there. Or you yeah. just recorded there. Oh, you stayed there. Well,
1: we started yeah. uh, commuting, and then later I said, you know, it's a long drive. Let's just move in. Uh, we moved in. I, w- I lived at the Peabody Hotel for a sure. While.
0: Watch those ducks every day. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna walk the ducks.
1: Yeah, Mister yeah. Mr. Pembroke, gonna walk the ducks.
0: <laughs> so then you just go. The, so the, the so seventy five, so seventy three, Trace Hombres, seventy five, Fandango, nineteen seventy seven, Tejas. I remember being excited when that came out because I was in high school and I was like, "Holy shit, here it is! It's a good looking cover." Where was that food from, and Tres Hombres uh leo's
1: mexican restaurant in houston yeah they they're unfortunately they closed their doors but while they were going i said i know where to get this <laughs> picture statement let's get the perception <laughs> right <laughs> and uh tejas was a huge record too right big one yep. uh it was odd in that there was one side that was uh, all studio recordings right and the flip side was a live version that we did down
0: in new orleans really or was that fandango I thought the live one... Oh, ones, I'm sorry, you're right. Right. Yeah, uh, Fandango. Yeah. Fandango was, yeah, because yeah. I remember the, we'd get in the car and we put that cassette in and we'd listen to that whole live side. Yeah. What you guys doing, like, like, like I mean, we drove to that shit. Yeah. But then, like, Tejas was huge, too. I mean, It's Only Love is a great song. Mm, we still play it. Do you? Yeah. It's great.
1: Uh, The funny thing about that particular track, uh, everybody talks about that, uh, the... The very uh, start of the track opens yeah. with Frank doing a little drum figure. Uh, it was rather simplistic, but the sound was bombastic and it was by accident the microphone had fallen off the stand and the microphone head was leaning up against the bass drum head
0: (laughs) it was an accident and
1: (laughs) frank's frank's bass drum was beating that poor microphone to death but it was (laughs) we couldn't figure out how he was doing it (laughs) and later the engineer came oh we may have to
0: do this again that no no leave it (laughs) so then after after tejas and after all those records you guys are selling you're doing stadiums right Yeah, it blew up. Yeah, it it
1: got big, and that was, you know, the start of who could outdo the next guy's production. It was. It was what started off as uh, just you know playing and wanting to you know play the best you could. Right. Then it the then it became uh, kind of this measure of theatrics and right and giant but you stayed with terry manning
0: and and the other guys yeah
1: joe hardy terry uh john hampton they they were the core they were the chief engineers right and they uh held sway over the they were studio a and studio b um and john fry um kind of gave them free hand uh to do keep the uh, focus on just making great sounding music so you're saying that the competition was about the show or was it about well when arena rock remember right, when that sure. term yeah. finally hit the streets yeah. it was definitely that it was turning in i mean the popularity of live uh, appearances were growing by leaps and bounds and it was nothing to play a, a baseball stadium right you know and yeah, everything was fine. Uh, we 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 did a show in '76. Uh, ZZ Top's barn dance and barbecue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Cocker was on the bill. Santana showed up. Uh, Jimmy Page came along with Bad Company. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was a pretty. Intri- it was like a hundred and eighty thousand people shoehorned into University of Texas Stadium.
0: Right? Is that what the photograph in Texas is of? Yes. Yeah. 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 They were all pals. That you yeah. know,
1: there was still a uh, great voice that guy, Paul Rogers. Oh yeah. Right. And th- there was still a re- real friendly exchange between bands. Were kind of mixing and matching. And right. And you guys,
0: of, you guys, closed that thing.
1: Yes. Uh, the uh, heat index was ridiculous. <laughs> right. But when it was all said and done, uh, Coach Darryl Royal discovered that some. Uh, rather zealous fan wanted to take a piece of Texas home and and carved out of the astroturf a piece in the state uh, the shape of the state of right. Texas <laughs> yeah and that didn't sit too well so that that, <laughs> that was no the end more of the, that was the <laughs> that's end that's all of, it took <laughs> no
0: more stadium shows <laughs> <Yeah>. there <laughs> so okay so then you move, and then you decide to, on the beards and you decide on right I mean that was about after Degueo, right that was when. The, well, we had, the real show started. We had we we worked up till the end
1: of '76, which was you know bicentennial, and there was a lot of excitement. Uh huh. And we took a what was intended to be a uh, three month holiday, uh, kept extending and extending. Uh, uh, Frank went down to Jamaica. Uh, Dusty was hanging out in parts of Mexico. I was over in Europe.
0: Did everyone keep their shit together? Was there any, like, you know, disasters? Uh, did uh, you almost lose anyone?
1: Well, we were on the phone uh, t- just to keep the, the, the connection, uh-huh. but we, we weren't sure what anybody was getting into. Right. I'm sure there were some, some hard left turns on the way. <laughs> but then we woke up when, we woke up, and three years had gone by. No personal appearances, no trips to the studio. Now, the the interesting, uh, the telltale evidence is to be found on the pull-out sleeve of DeGuello. Yeah. We finally got back together. Warner Brothers had stepped forward to hire us. Right. And they lured us away from London Records onto Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And when we showed up, uh, the abject laziness was evident. The beards had okay. started. Right. Even Frank was in the running. Right. He gave up the ghost. Dusty and I had the jump on it. Right. So he said, look, I got the name. You guys take it. Right. But uh, we went in, um, uh, resumed our residency there at Arden Studios in Memphis. And I want to say the first track was uh, what you pointed out earlier, uh, and, folks, Mark is uh, very astute. He knew that this Dust My Broom track was uh, long overdue. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was the opening track. It was kind of a warm-up thing. Uh-huh. Not, nothing to really... Uh, right. But it felt familiar. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah. just something to get it going. Get your slide out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had the... I'd learned the Elmore James upstroke uh-huh. technique. Uh-huh. You know, he... he he did that da 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 It was all up. up. Oh, really? Most of the time. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, there's there's a long-running, uh, I don't know if it's it's a joke. It was actuality. That was, they said, yeah, Elmore keeps doing that same riff. <laughs> That's the, all he knew. Right. It was it
0: enough. Was, it was enough. Sure. He said, yeah, you better enjoy it while I, while you can, because when I'm gone, it's gone. Right. I That's mean, and, and Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, I mean, uh, with Jeremy Spencer, that now, was. Now, yeah. there's an exception. Yeah. Because Jeremy Spencer could deliver. Right,
1: right. He learned it. He learned it, and and he was hung up on it. And could sing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those two guys, Peter Green and Jeremy Spencer. So, DeGueo, that, well, that, okay, Dust My Broom had Cheap Sunglasses, that was a huge hit. I thank you, that was a huge hit. So the hits keep coming, man. But the production changes. Yeah.
1: Um, we well actually uh, this was still in the day of the big uh, the big who's got more lights yeah who's got a bigger sound system right and that continued on Uh, we did uh, OG all the way through Uh, there was the Guayo followed with El El Loco Loco, yeah and then uh, Eliminator was the Biggie the Wild Card oh wow yeah oh wow that is a big one holy shit yeah and the I, I think it was not necessarily thought out or planned, but the general consensus of what goes on at Ardent Studio, even today, yeah. there's an openness and a willingness to experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, John Fry was uh, funding all of this uh newfangled stuff because he was curious technology yeah okay right he wanted to stay up with uh the the as as technically as recording the ways to record and the equipment to capture right you get sold on the idea that technology is a good thing uh, yes at that time
0: it was in full swing right later uh the pendulum swung back sure so you were so what was the technology what was it like uh i mean frank was still drumming yes uh and then lyndon hudson
1: uh he was a producer and engineer uh he was actually living uh at frank's uh, house mm-hmm. frank had an extra house on the house and mm-hmm. lyndon was uh, there we built a small studio at frank's house okay and linden brought up the notion of uh good timing yeah good tuning and good timing mm-hmm. and that was such a simplistic notion but everybody had kind of forgotten about it mm-hmm. so uh frank went to start woodshedding and and we were we were playing specified tempos and and we were we're playing with uh, learning how to play with a click track, so we didn't drift. Our habits had gotten so terrible. We, we, when you play on the road as much as Easy Top played on the road, you uh-huh. start developing this weird muscle memory. Yeah, uh, you play the same song seven nights in a row. Well, you start off on Monday and it's in proper tempo. Right by Sunday yeah. of the end of the week. You know it, and the only uh, challenge left is well, we know how to play it. We can play it, by, but let's play it faster. <laughs> yes. And by the end of six months, your three-minute song is over in about forty seconds. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> so, punk rock by the time you're done. Oh, you know, definitely.
0: <laughs> so that was really uh, uh, an interesting thing. So this guy says, like, we got to reel this in. You guys got to get your tuning right. You got to get the, the 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 tempo steady. Yeah. And that it was weird because I think people thought that it was somehow mechanized, but it wasn't. It was just you being diligent. Well, there, there, and Terry
1: Manning and uh, the whole Joe Hardy, ardent yeah squad, uh, ironically had the same um, advantage of figuring out how do we incorporate. Uh, let's face it, ZZ Top. They were not a, uh, uh, at the, well at the time we weren't really a techno band Mm -hmm. but these technological advancements were starting to make their way and we were experimenters we didn't we didn't know what we were doing necessarily but that was the the good measure
0: was there was never a manual right and and, and people want you want people to dance you wanted to keep up with the pace of what people were into yes right uh and um over the airwaves, right,
1: good-sounding records with with proper timing, right, were starting to become um, the order of the hour. Right, there was the discovery, and you know, uh, good timing is nothing more than a factor of trustability. Right when it uh, let's face it the guy on the dance floor his girlfriend drags him out there he doesn't want to be there yeah and uh, <laughs> yeah. the live drummer if he drops a beat the guy loses his balance he falls on the floor and he you know he just doesn't <laughs> dig it however um the rise of predictably on time music eliminated that worry mm-hmm. because uh, that which is repeatable becomes trustable and us human condition like to be trusted something. Sure, sure. Yeah, nowhere to put your foot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're be One smart. in
2: front of the yeah, other, yeah.
0: not on the floor. So, all right, so you do all those records and then uh, like things sort of, you know, kind of you know, with afterburner, recycler, antenna, you're still jamming. But yeah. at some point, you what was it that made you go like, we got to get back to we got we got to do we got to do with the meme the guy in the
1: street uh, kind of uh, called our attention he forced our hand um, you know the expert from out of town sure they thought that they had discovered that we were starting to become um, too far away from those blues roots Uh uh-huh and it was a it was a loud uh, voice yeah something to not be ignored Uh uh-huh and we didn't really have a problem with it. I like playing that bluesy
0: kind of thing. Yeah. So back in we get. Yeah, it's great, man. And uh, and Longford La- Futuro was great. How was that working with Rick Rubin? Well, he's flying overhead. Yeah, he's, he's t- listening now. He's, he's tuning in. He doesn't in. want anyone to say anything. It, it, it was pretty stripped down, though. I just listened to it the other day, but it's it's definitely solid. Was that an interesting experience, working with him?
1: Oh, definitely. Now, I had known Rick uh, socially. We had become pals back in uh, 1980. Uh-huh. Uh, I w- and believe it or not, uh, I went to a rave yeah. at Knott's Berry Farm, of all places. Uh-huh. You probably fit right in, right? Well, <laughs> Rick was working on the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, project that was underway. Yeah. And um, my little gal friend uh, was friends with Flea and his gal friend, and all of a sudden there was this big gang load. Let's go to Knott's Berry Farm. It mm-hmm. starts at midnight, mm-hmm. which was very uncharacteristic for Knott's Berry Farm to be having a raise. Sure. But we all went and became fast friends from that night forward and uh rick would periodically uh he'd step forward and say well i know now's the not the time but don't think that i'm not watching and sooner or later hopefully we'll be able to get in cut
0: it up pretty good well he's like a curator of authenticity now he's like you know he wants the bare bones of shit yes he is a realist yeah
1: uh and an economist, uh, if he can get you to do more through less, mm-hmm. that that is a a. I, I think it's one of his strong points. Mm-hmm. Com- you compare – you add that onto his remarkable sense of patience. Mm-hmm. No hurry. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, uh, and he and – he, He can feel it. And Mm -hmm. until he feels it, he'll. One day we were in the studio and Dusty leaned over and he said, Hey, uh, you you know Rick inside and out. You guys have been pals forever. Uh, We've been playing the same song for three hours. Do do you think you could ask Rick if we're getting somewhere? (laughs) I said, Hey, he was afraid
0: to ask him. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And and I said, Okay, fine. I looked through the glass. I said, Hey, Rick. are we getting anywhere with this? He goes, dude, he said, you guys nailed it uh, in the first 20 minutes. We just like watching you guys play.
2: <laughs> so, you know, that's
1: Rick. He he is so. What, what did Dusty say after that? <laughs> well, he, he could only grin and goes, you yeah, <laughs> And what, what, uh, what made it all work is yeah. not only does Rick uh, appreciate uh, music, from a performance and recording standpoint
0: we like playing so we didn't care yeah (laughs) we said okay great are you happy to be back doing that sort of analog thing i mean it came out on 45 it came out on 180 gram vinyl i mean did you know that was going to happen was that your choice uh again um,
1: rick's uh vigilance toward what uh is beyond trendy Mm -hmm. but uh what 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 shows up of value mm-hmm. he's not afraid to uh make that as an offering um whether or not we it was not designed right.
0: necessarily right. we were just having a good time and did he do that all on uh did you guys record that on on analog or you just recorded it with regular they were doing some of
1: everything uh-huh he, sounds great That's yeah great he doesn't miss a lick uh uh, if it sounds good on analog, fine. If it sounds good through some digital, digital magic machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It all will go, uh, toward one thing. What feels right. And you're feeling good. Yeah. You're having yeah. a good time. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was great. We would, we would commute. It was uh, a way to get me out of Hollywood out to Malibu. Mhm. It was about an hour commute. Mm hmm. But it was just enough to, uh, you know, driving along PCH and and kind of chilling out and just getting in a space that that made a lot of sense.
0: And how'd you get hooked up with Josh Homme on that tune on his last album? Because he was thrilled to... I, he came over here and I interviewed him and I was playing ZZ Top when he walked in oh awesome and he was like oh, Billy played on my song and he said you hit a harmonic with your beard <laughs> yeah that was true <laughs> yeah the
1: beard was dangling over the strings little and I was I was uh, bearing down yeah uh, we were getting it he, you know he's not only a wonderful uh, and talented individual he has surrounded himself with with w- remarkable players yeah yeah and they all hold dear that notion of of doing it fiercely yeah uh our first encounter he he was uh wanting to do a a cover of an early zz top song called precious and grace Mm -hmm. and they were struggling with the middle break and he tracked me down and uh, he said hey man we're over here in burbank can you come over and i said sure man what you got on he said well this precious and grace thing has us on the ropes I said, "You guys." I said, "Come on, man." He said, "Well, but uh I knew we were uh, destined to become uh long-standing buddies inside that studio was was an array of the strangest, weirdest, unheard-of uh, uh, gear. Yeah. They're all gearheads, uh-huh. man. They they had the weirdest, wildest stuff. Like what? Well, uh Josh said, You know we're just beginning to learn our heroes uh from the fifties, the blues guys that we attempt to interpret uh-huh they didn't have money to buy the expensive fender, or sure. Gibson guitars these were uh Tone yeah uh, harmony ks k's yeah the the kind of the sears I mean, guitars I mean they were good instruments, sure. Just more affordable, and that's what a lot of that stuff. And they do have a distinctive sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, same goes with the amps. They didn't have the Showmans and the basemans and they had uh, Alamo, this, the Challengers, and 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 stuff. Maybe a champ, maybe yeah, at best, yeah. Uh, so they they have made it a point to create interesting sounds with the Unpredictable Instruments. Wow. It's it's an array. We were talking, James Harmon, another buddy of ours, uh, James is a great blues harmonica blower. Yeah. Uh, James has worked with us on ZZ Top Records many times. And early on, James worked with Walter Shakey Horton. Yeah. They did a blues duet tour. And uh, James was laughing because uh, as kind of a curious Really dedicated and interested guy. When they'd come back to the, they shared hotel room. And uh, James said, Yeah, I used to ask questions, questions. In fact, uh, I learned that I was asking too many questions. And I said, How so? And he said, Well, every night, you know, I'd say, Well, what was it like in Chicago? What was it like down in Mississippi? What was it like in Memphis? Mm-hmm. And one night, uh, Walter turned to, James, and he said, you know, James, you're a curious man. You're always asking questions. He said, and there's a few things that you don't really know about me. James said, So what would that be? And he said, you know Roy Rogers? And James looked at him kind of quizzically. He said, you mean the cowboy, the, the movie star? He said, yeah, Roy Rogers. I said, yeah, I know Roy Rogers. What about Roy Rogers? He said, well, you know his famous horse? He said, you mean Trigger? I said, yeah, Trigger. He said, what about it? He goes, I train Trigger. (laughs) James, at that point, he shrunk down, realizing, okay, no more questions. (laughs) He said, I've just learned it. But uh, Walter Horton told him, he said, yeah, he said, one of the interesting asides, when Walter got to Chicago, he was knocking around, and he finally landed a job uh, at one of the local – uh... taxi services in chicago yeah and he worked his way up to uh... helping the dispatcher and uh, the reason that he was so strident and stuck it out until he got that position is he knew that during the dispatcher shift change, yeah. if he took some wire cutters, he cut that wire and he'd have a microphone to blow his harmonica through.
0: <laughs> is that where that type of microphone started being used as a, a harmonica mic? I mean, because it's like a... The, what's that mic they use for those harmonica? That's a big old, you know, that one that they... The, the Green Bullet. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, uh, well, Turner made one, Sure, made one. Uh, little Walter is credited with you know, first taking the the Mississippi saxophone as they called it and uh-huh. the amplification, you know, he juke. Oh the best. great, Yeah. Good stuff. Really
0: good stuff. You wanna play that guitar? Yeah. Let me let me break this thing out.
1: trench back to a favorite what? was originally uh, heard from uh, the hand of Raku?ter his was a mandolin version but I think we can get through
2: mm-hmm. I'll sing the true song of Billy the kid I'll sing the record Mexico a long time ago, when a man's best friend was his own 44. And now when Billy the King was a very young lad, in old Silver City, he went to the bad way out where With a knife in his hands At the age of 12 years He killed his first man Yeah Fair Mexican maidens Play guitars and sing They sing the songs about Billy Their boy bandit king Before this young manhood had reached his side and he notched on his pistol for twenty-one men it was on one black night that poor billy died he said to his friends i'm not satisfied there's twenty-one men I've put bullets through, and Sheriff Pat Garrett's gonna make 22. Yeah. Well, this is how Billy the Kid met his fate. A big moon was shining, and the hour was getting late. Shot down by Pat and Garrett, Silver City's best friend. The poor outlaw's life has reached a sad end. Mm. Yeah. Hey unbelievable
1: thank you so much for talking to me Billy it was a real honor awesome man Mark thank you so much
0: man how fucking amazing did that sound so simple so sweet and to hear that voice that we're all so familiar with over so many years that unproduced just two mics in here buddy Just two mics in here, people. That was an SM7 next to his mouth and an Encore, a blue Encore 200 on that little guitar. God damn it, that was fun. Great meeting that guy. He gave me a pick. I got it right here. I got a pick. Thick-ass pick, man. So look, folks, that's it. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTFPod needs. Check the calendar. I am going to be touring a bit with the Oddball Festival, doing a little 15-minute spot in some cities. Got some other gigs coming up in Bloomington I got some uh, a gig coming up in uh, Charlotte uh, Kansas City uh, St. Louis is sold out But stuff's going on Go to WTFPod.com, check the calendar Check the episode guide Get the free app, upgrade to premium Stream all that stuff for a few bucks extra Thank you Chicago Thanks for coming out That was fun It was a big night for me man have a lot of realizations. I'm on the precipice. I'm on the precipice of big change. I'm on the precipice of letting go of the struggle, of the panic, of the cycle, and just doing the work. Is that possible? Now, now I'm second guessing it. Now I don't even know what I'm talking about. Boomer lives.